What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of virtual reality and the writing process. Our first guest is John Pickavance, a researcher from the University of Leeds, and we'll discuss virtual reality in the classroom. Then we'll talk with author Julie Berry about her journey as a writer. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll learn about summer programs offered at the Hogel Zoo. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. There is a lot of talk in education today about how we can assure that students are college and workplace ready. What we want here are students who are independently able to apply the skills needed for success in these venues. While all skills related to literacy, including reading, writing, speaking, and listening, are important, there is a broader set of literacy skills we address that are termed 21st century skills. These skills focus in on the patterns of thinking and communication that students will be expected to engage in throughout their lives and into the future. This changes our focus from not only reading, writing, and math, but also puts it on communication, collaboration, creativity, problem solving, technology, citizenship, information literacy, and life skills. For me, I find these skills are the more complex aspects of education. Sadly, many of the current educational approaches we often focus on are more of what could be considered lower levels of thinking. However, these lower level skills are not always those that are necessary to compete in 21st century environments. Skills for the conditions found in modern colleges and workplaces require higher order skills such as analysis and synthesis. This does not mean that we will abandon lower order skills in any way, for comprehension and knowledge skills are still fundamental. However, we are being asked to diversify our understanding of all of the skills that make a person literate. With this increased emphasis on important 21st century higher order thinking skills, it is now up to concerned adults in children's lives, including teachers, librarians, parents, aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, to start thinking about how we can help our children refine and use their abilities to discover, use, and apply all of these skills, not only when they are young, but also as they grow up. So finding ways to help our children learn how to be good communicators, to allow them opportunities to collaborate with others or work on a team, to give them authentic ways to express their creativity and find ways to solve problems, and ultimately finding ways to help them engage as a citizen of the global world are just the kinds of life skills each of our children need. Because here at Rachel's World, we believe that with the basics of reading, writing, speaking, and listening, it's the critical 21st century skills that are going to help make our children college and workplace ready. Rachel's World. 
The way children learn inside the classroom is constantly evolving. We've gone from lectures on chalkboards to lessons blended together with online content. Where technology goes, our children's educational experience follows. Today, we have on the phone John Pickavance, a PhD researcher in cognitive science at the University of Leeds. Welcome, John. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. Well, I am very much pleased to have you on the show to introduce to our studio audience a very intriguing kind of concept, and that is the use of virtual reality, particularly in the classroom and with education. So to start out, tell us a little bit about the scope of this. What what does this look like? What are some of the ways that you might use VR in a classroom situation? Right. Um, so the scope, as you might imagine, is actually huge. Um, so, I mean, the obvious application would be to use uh, VR to deliver traditional lessons in a, in a new way, right? Um, so one thing that I've written about is how we can explore environments that um, traditionally we, we're unable to explore, things like space, which is obviously much larger than we can comprehend, and then things like cells, which are much smaller. Um, so in a very kind of specific sense, um, we can use virtual reality simulations of these environments to allow students to engage with these environments, um, thus improving their learning. Uh, so that, that's like the most obvious application. But beyond that, um, we can also begin to think about using virtual reality maybe to supplement field trips for um for example, very disadvantaged schools. So we work in a city called Bradford, which is among the most deprived um, cities in the UK. Um, and one thing we're exploring is ways of bringing experiences to those children um, that they just wouldn't have otherwise. For example, you know, something as simple as a trip to the beach or you know, to a mountain, these children often haven't been outside their own cities. Um, so that's, that's another thing beyond the lessons that, that we can offer, just kind of open their eyes to the possibilities of what's out there. Um, but then perhaps more radically still, um, we can actually use virtual reality as um, clinical assessment tools. Um, so my particular research, what, what I'm interested in is how children's movement skills relate to their um, academic um, outcomes. Um, so we could go on at length about this, but, but very recently we published a paper that showed that children's ability to hit moving targets was a strong predictor of their maths ability. Um, and so if we can produce virtual reality assessments of this kind of thing, for example, a baseball game, and we can assess all children um, who are attending schools in these kind of tasks, then we can potentially um, identify those children's to those children who are in danger of falling behind before um, those problems manifest. Um, so actually, you know, beyond just delivering VR in, in classes for subjects like science or, you know, even history where we can, um, you know, go back in time, for example, um, we can also supplement the kind of pastoral spot of the kids, giving them experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have, but then also um, use it to, to identify children who... Um, you know, might otherwise go without help until it's too late. So it really is enormous, the scope for virtual reality in schools. And those are, those are the areas that we're 
exploring as a whole. Well, that is an enormous scope, and I I want to dive into all of it. (laughs) It's it's just so fascinating. I I think sometimes we look at a technology like virtual reality and we we think of it as kind of a game application right. instead of kind of right. a learning or diagnostic application so the right. fact that we're you're helping us see this in a in a very different way is so incredible mm-hmm. so to, mm-hmm. to dive into it a little bit more let's go back to the first one and you say the learning outcomes particularly when you're doing things like cells or space or history mm-hmm. the learning outcomes are actually improved talk to us a little bit about that what what actually improved with this application? Okay, so, I mean, this all goes with a huge caveat, and that is obviously this is still very early days for the technology and the applications. Um, so we only have preliminary data to go off. Um, but one specific example I can give you is um, something I've written about, which is the virtual plant cell, um, which was designed by colleagues in Australia. And they've um, developed... Uh, an interactive lesson where children can go inside a plant cell and um, give each other tours, for example, um, and walk around for themselves. Rather than being shown the flat images in a textbook, they uh, essentially have their own agency in these spaces. And what they've found with that particular application is that if you give um, children uh, a test on the labeling and uh, modeling of the, um, you know, the organelles of a plant cell, they actually perform up to 30% better than those children who have um, only been given the standard uh, chalk board kind of lecture um, methodology, which is, is what they use at the moment. So I think for this particular application, obviously, we can we can ground 3D spaces. I think when you look at things in a textbook, it's very easy to think, well, that's just a two-dimensional object, right? Yeah. Um, but actually, things like cells, they're three-dimensional. Um, and, and what virtual reality really allows us to do is, is to kind of drill that message home. And, and it seems to be having this um, facilitating effect. Um, it really clarifies that message. And so when uh, they're asked to perform kind of problems that revolve around it being in three dimensions, then they're much better at at kind of um, acquitting themselves to it. So that's one specific example I can give you. Um, And and there's, you know, that's supported by good theory. Um, But we're, you know, we're hoping to kind of um, build on that and start exploring on a much larger scale, you know, beyond the plant cell, you know, well, what, what other areas can it help us in? And, you know, I've mentioned, you know, other science applications, but also in things like history and English, where it is traditionally very difficult to, um, to get students to engage. It's, it's a very abstract um, disciplines where they're having to imagine, you know, well, what, what would it have been like then? Or what is this kind of setting of this novel about that with virtual reality, you know, Again, just like the plant cell, they can they can go in there and see it for themselves, and you know, in just the same way, we'd expect them to 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 kind of grab the message more that the teachers are trying to to convey. Um, so yeah, it's still early days, but there's definitely a lot of potential there. Yeah, (laughs) such incredible potential. And as Mm. you talk about that, talk about them kind of engaging in that, the thing that 
comes to my mind is this sense of the learning is much more active and there's exactly. much more engagement in it. And that moves exactly. to kind of your, your last point that you made earlier about how we are engaging with movement and these kind mm. of active movements. So talk mm. a little bit more about that, about your research and going into movement and why those kinds mm. of things and the kind of physical aspects that we might be yeah. denying in education are really significant. Yeah, well, I mean, there are lots and lots of reasons, but allow me to kind of just draw on two strands to illustrate. Um, so I guess the first kind of like, most general reason is um, exercise and, and moving around, getting the heart rate going. All these things um, have been shown, obviously, to have great health benefits, both physical and mental health. Um, and, and actually, these processes... Um, that get the the heart rate going and get the the, the joints moving. Um, we've seen stimulate what we call neurogenesis, so the kind of growth of of um, neurons in the brain and the connections between them, um, which is key to um, cognitive performance, the the brain functioning well. Um, so yeah, just the act of exercise itself has um, this kind of uh, property that it um, it kind of it, it lets the mind kind of become more malleable, if it, as it were, and um, and and grow through through learning. Um, so that's one side of it. But then, more much more specifically, we're talking about these these movement skills. So this this kind of um, uh, hails from a long um, Piagetian uh, tradition. Uh, so in infancy uh, and and earlier, when in very newborns, the first thing. That, um, that the child has to do is to um, move in space um, and explore with their hands. Um, and it's through these processes that they begin to form abstract concepts of permanence um, and number, which obviously then go on to underpin things like maths and language much later on in the development cycle. Um, so there are these... So our ability to act in space actually underpins a lot of our um, cognitive faculties in later life. So as you might imagine, so we, there's a condition or a, a syndrome, we, DCD, dyspraxia, um, that, that often manifests itself in, in, in like children who are clumsy. And, and we find that they tend to have much poorer academic outcomes. And, and we believe this is why, because they haven't been able to kind of um, explore and interact with their uh, physical environment in the same way a normally developing child would be able to. Um, and so if we go into the assessment of those movement skills, we can kind of pinpoint those who may be having difficulties and thus may be at risk of not developing academically. Uh, I gave maths as a specific example. So maths is an interesting one because our... Uh, the neural mechanisms that are responsible for numerical representation are also the same ones that we see being recruited in um, tasks with a spatial dimension. Um, so, if, like in imaging studies. So, if it's the same mechanisms that are being used, um, then if we can find tasks that engage those those neurons um, in spatial problems, then 
that could be a good indication of how well they're able to perform, for example, mental arithmetic. And that's the kind of theory behind what we're doing. And, and as I say, that's, that's borne out in, in what we've found thus far in these, these tasks where they're trying to hit, for example, baseballs with a bat. Um, those students who are much better at it, um, we, we can say with, with some degree of certainty that they'll perform better on average in, in maths tests, um, which is just you know one piece of a much bigger data puzzle that we're hoping to piece together to um, try and accurately predict children's outcomes from these very simple measures. And you know, in VR, we can do it in five minutes. You don't need a healthcare professional. It's highly scalable. So you know, every child um, potentially in a school would be able to receive this assessment, and and thus, not no child will be left behind. So that's why we're really excited about it. That excites me too. I I love this sense that you bring to this that our motor skills and our intellectual skills are much more connected than we mm. often give it credit for, and that yep. we can use that to really help us assess where mm. children might struggle and to find mm. improvements. John, we have to take a quick break, but we'll get right back to our conversation in a moment. This is Worlds Awaiting, and I'm Rachel Wadham. I'm on the phone today with John Pickavance, a PhD researcher in cognitive science. So do you see applications then not only for the assessment with through VR, but then also maybe through allowing them to have some of these experiences or maybe kind of build some of these mortar skills experiences as well? Okay, so... I think what you're asking is, can we use VR to intervene? So yes. We can, we can say, okay, this child may be needing help, but can we give them a game, for example, that will help them improve? Yes. Um, that's, I mean, obviously, that's the kind of dream. Um, what, 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 I mean, what, I, what we have to be very careful with, though, as you know, scientists, is just because there's a, 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 a link or an association, it doesn't mean that it's causal. Yeah. So it's, it's very useful for us. To, have, to know that there is a link because then we can use it as an assessment. But that's not to say, well, we can rehabilitate these children and, and, and make their motor skills better and therefore they'll be doing better at maths, right? Yeah. Um, that, that, that is a much more tenuous kind of conjecture. Um, however, you know, there are certain things. Um, so a really good example would be handwriting. Definitely. So as you might... As you might imagine, you know, if, 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 if kids struggle with their motor coordination, their handwriting tends to be poorer. And, and actually, um, that, that can be a barrier to intellectual um, progress um, because children are spending much more of their attentional um, resources on concentrating on how am I going to form this number, mm. for example, rather than what's, you know, eight multiplied by six. Um, and if you're overloading the, the system like that, then it, they may be able to do the multiplication, but because they're struggling so much with writing it down, then they can't get to that step. Um, so one thing that we've done, not with VR, but um, uh, it's a similar kind of um, philosophy, is we've developed handwriting interventions um, that teachers can deliver to an entire class of students across an entire school um, and through that, we hope that um, through improving the handwriting, we can help children. We can lower the barriers that are holding them back in those other areas, um, higher order kind of 
processes, um, numerical reasoning, um, formation of argument, these kind of things. So I'd say that's, that's an example of how we can intervene, but it's not, it's not exactly, you know, well, if we can train them to hit balls better with baseball bats, then they'll get better at maths. It's yeah. not as kind of cut and dry as that. <laughs> Um, but certainly, you know, if we can do that without uh, with handwriting, you know, we we could explore other areas to um, to improve uh, other skills with VR. And, and you know, who knows? Maybe we we do get um, some some positive results out of that. That is very intriguing, and the potential, I think, at the very least, is there. You do mention mm. this fact that it, it can be enriching and enriching the lives of students. You mentioned mm. back a few moments ago in the middle that you were also using this to kind of enrich experiences for those mm. that might be in a lower socioeconomic status mm. or not have these experiences. So yeah. describe how that looks a little bit for us today. Um, yeah, so there are a couple. So there's a, one experience that um, that's a really cool one. I, I don't know. It, you may have heard of it. It's called um, Field Trip to Mars. Oh, actually, I have. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So this this wasn't specifically using VR goggles, but it is what we would call an immersive experience. The the children was were in a school bus, um, and we're told they'd be going to the park, for example, um, but then. The, the 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 computer projections of uh, an alien landscape on the planet of Mars were projected through the screens, and suddenly they were kind of transported to this 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 other place, right? Um, and yeah, these kind of that's one specific example of an experience. But then others um, that we've been playing with at, at the university here, we've had trips to stately homes. Um, one is a trip. Uh, one is um, kind of traveling the world to see all these um, interesting, uh, you know, rainforests and the Great Barrier Reef and, and these kind of things. Um, and we haven't, we've been using it just as an exploratory tool, you know, are these experiences interesting? Um, can we, for example, uh, teach children about, um, you know, global warming through them or, um, but there are certainly plans um, to reappropriate them into these kind of um, more like uh, trips, I guess you'd call them, um, for, for those who are disadvantaged. And we'd be hoping to find, through the use of these, uh, some kind of, against some score of, of wellness, um, uh, happiness, um, psychometric assessment, um, some kind of benefit from that 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 those children without it wouldn't get and and obviously we'd be targeting those those students who lacked those experiences that you know at the more affluent schools these kids go on ski trips and you know they're in zoos and their parents take them to you know the grand canyon and but um yeah that 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 is very much in the kind of early stages but you know using from a field trip to mars an example and some of the experiences we've got um we're definitely planning to to offer that um in the schools that we work with and and if you know with, with colleagues um clinical psych psychologists and educational psychologists they're interested in in whether these things can can yeah as you say enrich yeah. the the child's experience 
Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing what comes out of that research. Mm. It looks fascinating. Mm. I, I, I love the scope that you provide with this and the great broadness of what's going on here. But mm. I can't imagine that there aren't challenges with this technology or, or things that are, that are challenging about this. So what are yeah. some of those challenges that you face using this technology uh, or implementing it? Well, I mean, you know, it's hard just to get your computer working on a morning, right? Um, <laughs> yes. working, working with technology is, it can be very difficult at times. Um, and, and, and what I will say, you know, there are certainly barriers now that do prevent the kind of wholesale adoption of this. So, I mean, an obvious example would be that um, until very, very recently, all headsets were tethered by wires to a computer. Um, and so in a classroom setting, certainly this, this isn't ideal. We don't, we want, you know, we're talking about movement and allowing children to kind of explore their surroundings. We don't want to hold them back, right? That in Mm -hmm. itself could put some kind of restriction on them and through, you know, use over a period of time might kind of have more negative consequences. We need it to be completely untethered. Um, We need it to be what we want it to be. Um, and that that's a kind of technological um, kind of point, really. The, the 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 technology simply only just getting to that point where we can unplug it from the machines and let people explore freely. Um, that's that's certainly been been one challenge. Um, I think another is obviously um, getting teachers comfortable using it. Um, I don't know what it's like in the states. I'm sure it's 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 similar how it is over here teachers just don't have any time yes um, <laughs> so true any, you know yeah they're, they're they're just so overworked and we ask an awful lot of them and to you know to to overwhelm them with this new complicated technology and a new way of of doing classes um it's you know it's a lot to ask right so certainly at this stage we're looking at feasibility studies you know what's the best way of of managing these kind of experiences um, I think it's easy to imagine, you know, a, a class of 30 students wearing their VR headset and a teacher at the front, but I just don't, I don't think that's how it will look. I think it's much more likely um, that, that schools will have like a VR lab with maybe five or six headsets and, and a teacher in there that can um, uh, supervise much more closely. Um, students would, would be working in pairs, um, so one thing that worked really well with the plant cell would, would be that the, the the students would be in pairs and there'd be one in the virtual reality simulation and then another on the outside and there'd be a kind of information gap between the two. So they'd have to be kind of communicating mm. what they could see and what they could do. And that's a really common kind of pedagogical device anyway. Um, but to use it in VR, you know, it reduces the need for the number of headsets. We only need one between two. Um, and it also ensures that there's, you know, another kind of at least semi-responsible person kind of seeing what's happening, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's, you know, there are a lot of challenges, you know, technological, logistical, um, in, in the kind of implementation of this kind of thing. Um, well, I'm glad you're facing them down because they sound like they're worth to overcome, these challenges. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So as we close our conversation today, pro- you know, Predict into the future, say about 20, 30 years, what, what would you like to see? How would you like to see this technology or your research have progressed and help us understand what, what that future looks like for you? 
Right. Um, I would love to see every school, certainly every state school in this country, I think you call them public schools over yep. there, um, with access to this technology for their, for their students um, who are able, as students enter the school and perhaps through every year, um, being given a battery of kind of assessments through computer games um, that are kind of allowing them to better tailor um, the educational experiences uh, for those children um, and using this technology responsibly, um, not using it as a cop-out as some, you know, may use other kind of forms of edutainment just to kind of shut the kids up, if you will, um, but, you know, using it for, for, for what it's there for and really enriching these children's experiences and providing them perspectives that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Um, I think the big thing for, for us at the University of Leeds in the Immersive Cognition Laboratory is that this stuff is, is scalable and it's accessible all across the city and, and no one's missing out. And the, 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 the progress of the technology, even just to now, has become so much more affordable and so much more accessible. In 20, 30 years, I can only imagine you know, that'll be even less of a problem. So, yeah. Wow. I want that future. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I appreciate all you and your colleagues are doing to help bring it about. Thank you so much yeah. for your time today to share no, this you, fascinating research and the fascinating concept of what virtual reality can be for our schools and our classrooms. Thank you again, John. Cheers. John Pickavance is a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds in England. Recently, we had special visitors from the Hogel Zoo in Salt Lake City. I had the opportunity of asking Suzanne Scracken and Erica Ferguson what fun summer programs the Hogel Zoo provides. So we have a, a very large range of programs for all ages up at the zoo, and we do them year-round, but in the summer is definitely when we do the most. So we've got uh, week-long summer camps that Erica is in charge of, and we've got a book club for adults. We've got nature family outings on the weekends. We have all kinds of things going on. So cool. So Erica, tell us a little bit about these uh, camps that you do. What, what do they look like? Uh, so we offer camps for kids um, going into first through eighth grade. Um, the first grade camps are only three days long, and they're half days. Um, and then the second through eighth grade are a full week long. And um, there are different topics that you can pick from. Let's kind of think about this. If I was an adult and I've got this fabulous, you know, thing, and I'm like, Hogel Zoo does this great stuff, why is I, why would I as a parent want to send my kids to one of these? What is the reason that you do these? Um, we do these to um, connect kids with animals and nature. So the camps are very animal heavy. Um, so they're not only fun, but they're also super educational. So we talk a lot about adaptations. And then into the older kids, we'll talk about conservation. And so our major goal with these camps is that um, kids will leave <clears throat> with a new love for animals and wildlife and hopefully grow to be adults who want to help protect them. And then every day, every day we bring animals into the classroom so the kids get to meet some of our education animals. We go out and look at the animals on the grounds, meet some zookeepers. We do we do all kinds of stuff that you don't get to do in a normal visit to the zoo. That is absolutely amazing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there are 
animals that are these education animals. So describe describe what an education animal is for our audience. Yeah. So our education animals are animals that are handled by education staff. They are we are trained to properly handle them. So they're animals that we will actually bring into the classroom as a teaching tool that they can meet. Um, so they're not our more highly dangerous animals that are you see on exhibit. But they're usually smaller, handleable animals, but they're still really cool animals that they get to meet and interact with. We've got owls, um, snakes, giant hissing cockroaches, <laughs> ferrets, <laughs> rabbits, um, tortoises. You know, some of these are animals that the kids can touch, and some of them we just look at. But we've got you know, a range of stuff that we use for summer camp, but that we also take out to schools during the school year. That really is important to me because when we talk about literacy, we talk about text and we do talk about text with like books, but text can also be this natural world. Like, so a physical object, like a plant or an animal that we, we discover and we learn more about our world. And, and that's a great thing to do in the summer is to, to learn something that we may not have known before about some cool animals. Yeah. So as they come in, you do all kinds of activities with them, and they they leave with just a better understanding of this. So maybe tell us maybe an experience that you've had at one of these summer camps that that just show how these kinds of camps impact the kids that come. Well, probably one of the greatest things the kids will get to do in camp is either feed a giraffe or a rhino. And even me, I've been here for a couple years and I've done that multiple times. And every time I am still just, every time you have that experience, you just leave with this joy and kids will just come running out to their parents. I got to feed a rhino. And um, it just, it makes my day and I think it makes their whole day. (laughs) That would totally make my day. (laughs) I love it. becoming a writer is not universal. Every author has a unique story of how they became an author and of how they continue to practice their craft. We can find inspiration for our own lives as we listen to their stories. Today, we have author Julie Berry in the studio to share her story. Welcome, Julie. Hi, thank you. I am just a huge fan of your books. So if I sound a little fangirl today, please forgive me because I just I love what you have to author the world to offer the world. And it is it's so unique. And you offer just a great wide scope of things. So to start out, tell us a little bit about why did you start writing? Where where did this come from? <laughs> well, I think I was just always that girl who loved to read. You know, I grew up in the country. Um, back before the digital world that we now occupy. And I just always had books with me. I was I took books to bed the way that other kids take stuffed animals. And I always was reading in the car and, and you know, at any pocket of, of unclaimed time, I had a book in front of me. So I always say, you know, people who love to eat usually figure out how to cook. And I think that people who love to read are, are very inclined to make writing part of their life in some way, whether it's creative writing or some other kind. I didn't really get my start as a writer until I got my first journal for my ninth birthday. Uh, No, I'm sorry, for Christmas when I was nine. I remember it was a Norman Rockwell journal. And I just fell completely in love with the process of writing about 
my day each day. And my journals are just full of nonsense. I mean, they're, they're, they are not works of art. But every day I wrote about what happened and how I felt about it. And by the time I'd done that for years and years, I think I'd just developed an ease with, well, that sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? I developed an ease with putting words on the page. Um, good words, bad words, whatever words. I had, I had gotten over the fear that I think some students have of writing anything at all. And so um, there was always a dream of writing books, and it was always a dream of writing books for young people because those were the books that that changed my life, that enchanted me, that charmed me. And, of course, I, I love you know, great literature for all ages, but it was the books I read when I was young that were just so magical and just transported me completely. So I always dreamed of doing that. But it wasn't until my youngest son, who's um, my fourth boy, was born, that I really found the the courage, the desperation, I don't know what it was, something sort of shifted in my mind after he was born. And it just sort of felt like I was led to say, you know, now, now's the time, now's the moment to give it a, a, a shot. And certainly my husband, Phil, was a tremendous encouragement there. He absolutely um, encouraged me to move forward. And even, um, you know, when I doubted myself, he would kind of push me along. I've always said that the only times I've ever obeyed my husband were when he said to me, you are not going to quit this. You are going to keep on going. <laughs> I'm so glad. Good time to obey. Good time. Good time. <laughs> <laughs> he's been he's been amazing. I, I love that sense of it, you became comfortable with it by just putting words on the page, because I think for a lot of people, that's the barrier to writing mm-hmm. is they just aren't comfortable with putting words on the page. And I love that it started with your own day and your own thoughts and then developed into creating these very fanciful stories as you move forward. But is that still something you kind of go back to, those feelings and emotions that are very personal to you? Do you find those influencing your work? Definitely. You know, I, I try to write about a wide variety of topics and people and settings. But at the end of the day, they are all going to be manifesting emotions that I have at least some experience with, whether through my own life or maybe my sort of empathetic observation of others around me who've gone through certain challenges. Um, So I only have my window of the world from which to draw. And so I think, you know, what what makes us really respond to literature is if we can feel something, if we can relate to the emotions that the characters are feeling. And so I think that all those years of writing mundane and <laughs> trite little journal entries about my crush on so-and-so <laughs> in its eighth grade really made me more comfortable writing about feelings, writing about romance or writing about heartbreak or writing about loneliness or whatever it was. Um, I think, as you said, people have a lot of fear, and I think they feel this pressure to write beautifully, and and they feel they they're very conscious of the um, you know mediocrity of their words, and they they feel that that if they can't be Shakespeare, it's not worth the bother, and that's what I love about journaling is it's a completely private experience. You don't have to impress anyone with your journal. So I've always felt free to let it out. Spell it however you spell it. Don't worry about it. It's for you. And um, and then it, it takes away the fear. I think that's a really important point that people need to remember because I think particularly as we help kids learn to become writers or express themselves in writing, just letting go of that fear is, is really the fundamental thing. 
One of the things I love about your works is they're kind of hard to pigeonhole. I mean, with some writers, I can say, oh, they are a writer of this genre or they are a writer of this type of book. But with you, I just I can't <laughs> because you write kind of all over the spectrum. I, mm-hmm. I think you mostly stick with kind of a fantasy historical fiction kind of realm. But everything is so different with with your books, which is just delightful and fun because I, I know I'm going to love what you've right but i never know what to expect which is kind of fun the mystery of it all it's like what's new what's going to come here come out next i think is just a lot of fun so how do you go about kind of choosing what your next project will be is is there a process that you go or do you have lots of things in the hopper and then just the one that comes to the fore at the time how does that process work particularly when you're so diverse in what you're engaging in well, maybe a good analogy would be to think of someone you know who sews or quilts, right? They have closets and closets filled with fabric that they bought for projects they intended to get to, and maybe they'll get to some of it, but a lot of it will be there when they die. So uh, I think I'm sort of a quilter of stories. I have notebooks filled with, with ideas that occurred to me at one point or another. I try, when I get a new idea, to at least give it a few pages worth of writing, because that tells me whether or not the idea has any electricity to it at all. Um, and, you know, it, one of the things that's sad and frustrating is knowing that I won't live long enough to, and I'm, you know, healthy and everything, but I won't live long enough to write all the stories that I'd like to. Um, but I tell young people in particular, an idea, we all get ideas. We all think, oh, what if there was a superhero who did this or that? Or what if there was a character who did such and such? We all get them, but I write them down because I know that could be next year's income. <laughs> This random idea could be, you know, the book I sell next. So I write them down and and I store them and keep them. And then when it comes time to pick my next project, I just sort of look through my notebooks and look through the the sort of open project folders on my computer and ask myself, what what feels promising? What's calling my name? What what really got somewhere? Um, There's also sort of market factor. You know, I I publish um, with Viking. They publish my young adult novels, so they've published All the Truth That's in Me and The Passion of Dulce. And I've published a couple books with um, Roaring Brook Press, which include The Emperor's Ostrich and The Scandalous Sisterhood of Brick Willow Place, and other publishers as well. Um, But you know, oftentimes I'm contractually obligated to give somebody another YA or another middle grade. So that's going to shape um, my process as well. Um, but I've always been afraid of um, becoming that author who's really predictable. And maybe I'm really overcompensating for that fear. <laughs> but um, I, I get bored easily. You know, I, I just don't think I could write the same kind of book over and over again. Maybe I should, you know, people who, you know, like, consistently crank out a great murder mystery every 18 months they do great you know (laughs) but I I just get a little restless and it's it's the challenge of something new that really inspires me and gets me going well as a reader I appreciate your restlessness because like I said it really for me as a reader it it's just so exciting to see what's coming from you next because if you take like all the truth that's in me and the emperor's ostrich they are two very very different books and they have such a unique tone and style to them that is so connected to the story that you're telling. So how do you how do you do that? How do you think about that kind of style and tone and you know character that makes this like a whole story within and of itself and not really kind of spilling into a 
something that may not be totally appropriate for that? Is that part of the editing process or is that part of the writing process for you? In my experience, the tone and voice of a piece are part and parcel with the piece itself. In other words, when I start a new project, there's a sort of um, mood that comes over me. I don't know how to explain it. This is going to sound really weird and kind that, of, you know. That's totally fine. <laughs> Explaining the artistic process is completely impossible. And I I ask the hard questions and make authors try to explain it. <laughs> well, it's, I always feel like when I talk about these parts, it sounds a little goopy, right? A little, uh, I don't know, new agey weird or something. But um, there'll be a sort of mood, a sort of emotion Almost like um, there's a color or a fragrance, and and it's neither of those things. But it's it's some evocative emotion comes over me, and um, and it calls me in a particular direction and a particular a particular problem or setting. And I'll start writing, and the new piece will have its own voice that's very different from anything else I've ever done, and that voice seems to again, be sort of organic to the idea. And and they are all different. And um, if there's one thing I've learned over the course of my career, it's to allow that to, to unfurl itself and to trust the voice of the piece and, and let it be its own wonky thing. And um, if if there's one arc I can point to in my career, it's that I've become more and more willing to be experimental with voice, willing to take more risks and do things that defy convention and break the rules. And, you know, maybe not everybody's going to appreciate that choice, but it's kept me happy. And I guess that's all I can do. Well, as I think as an author, that's really all you can do. (laughs) You can only keep yourself happy. But I I think you keep your fans happy. Now, and one of the other kind of conventions that you break is that you don't really write trilogies or sequels or anything like that. I think all of your books if I'm thinking correctly, are standalone books. I did have a series um, early on in my career, the um, Splurge Academy for Disruptive oh, yes. Boys. Okay. Yes. But that was a sort of graphic novel yeah. thing, so there were four of those. I'm certainly open to series and trilogies. Um, it's just, I, I guess I have found that um, standalones have allowed me to you know, explore a mood and an idea to the full and then move on to the next thing. But I'm a big fan of trilogies. I love, you know, YA dystopian trilogies. Um, I'm really enjoying An Ember in the Ashes right now. I'm kind of halfway through. Um, So I'm certainly open to that possibility. It just hasn't really happened for me much yet. That, that's interesting to know that this is this kind of just the way this works happens and they they become these types of things. And I mean, as a reader, I appreciate the standalones too, because I think sometimes waiting for the next book or con- feeling like you have all of this space to continue the story doesn't always make the, the first story as tight or mm-hmm. as close as you can get it. So I love that sense that you say I can explore what I need to and in its entirety in the one in the one book. Thank you so much, Julie. Oh, thank you. Julie Berry is the award-winning author of The Emperor's Ostrich and Lovely War. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Lindsay Watts and Meredith Zobel, librarians from Salt Lake City. They're here to share their book recommendations for younger kids. We are just so excited. You 
Meredith, you have this lovely baby book, so share it with us. Let, let's hear it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this one has been around for a little while. It's called Aerospace Engineering. Baby Loves Aerospace Engineering. <laughs> okay. Now, that like does not feel like a baby board book to me, mm-hmm. but it, it, I can see it right here. And it literally is a board book, and yes. apparently... Babies like aerospace engineering. Who doesn't? <laughs> I know who doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But the, this baby in particular looks like he loves it. So right, yeah. he's gonna be a pilot or an astronaut someday, and I love the connection to birds flying and to stars and space. And I can just see so many little kids looking at the pictures and wanting to read this one over and over, not just at bedtime. Well, and I know there's tons of kids out there of that toddler age group that just love airplanes Mm. or moving vehicles. Mm -hmm. And that's so fun. And what a great way to, like, increase their vocabulary, too. Right. (laughs) If they can say Tyrannosaurus Rex, Rex, they they can can say say Aerospace aerospace Engineering. engineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have never met a child who does not know how to pronounce every dinosaur name Mm -hmm. on the planet. Right. And even I, as an adult, look at the names and think, oh, I have no idea. (laughs) So that's no no problem. So I love it. Fun. What what is what yeah. is one other one? And then like? my next board book is a guilty pleasure of mine. I am a oh, trekker fabulous. born from from two trekkers who met at the Star Trek fan club on BYU campus. Oh, like, oh, like forty years <laughs> ago. I love it. Yeah. Um. So this is the Star Trek book of opposites, and it's very simple. Good illustration or photographs from stills from the TV show, the original series, and just a fun, nostalgic uh, place uh, walk down memory lane for some people with uh, opposites, like mean and nice and hot mm-hmm. and cold. And one mm-hmm. and many has a picture of uh, Captain Kirk with the tribbles. tribbles. And that's so perfect. Many, <laughs> so many. It's so perfect. Um, so I love it. Well, and that's one of the things I love about board books is that they really are designed to bring not only the young reader in, but also be elemental for the adult reader that's obviously going to be yes. interacting. So that's perfect. Exactly. A perfect example of that beautiful combination for mm-hmm. adult love and yes. child appropriateness. Exactly. So, yeah. well, and who can't love Star Trek? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any, anyone out there who does not love Star Trek, we can, we can have another conversation. <laughs> podcast for it. another day it's a podcast yes. for another day about why well and i have found that a lot of librarians we we are sci-fi <laughs> geeks just just by nature that's that's our profession so yes. i love it well Lindsay, what, yes. what do you have for us okay well what i'm going to jump like into share? picture yeah. books yeah so one of my favorite picture books is called zelda's big adventure and it is all about a chicken who is determined to be the first chicken in space yes, yes. chickens in space chickens in space that's what we need dogs have gone monkeys has gone chickens turn. exactly so zelda spent works really hard on the farm to build her rocket ship and she blasts off she makes it to the moon does lots of fun experiments, um, comes back, and then decides that uh, space was lonely without friends. So on her last page, she brings the rest of her chicken friends, rooster oh, friends, <laughs> with her on her next adventure in space. I love it. So much fun. I love it for space story time. And it just gets big laughs. It's hilarious. Chickens in space. Chickens get a lot of laughs. And there's something about chickens and children's books, particularly mm-hmm. lately. I, I don't know. We've we've been seeing a lot of a lot of chickens. They're funny. Children's books. They are very funny, and they have big dreams. Oh, yeah. Usually, oh, so yeah. yeah, it's a good thing. I love it. What's another one you want to okay. share? Okay, yeah. I also have um, a really fun one. That's a picture book based on some true facts. By astronaut Mark Kelly. So it's called Mousetronaut. 
And it's all about the first group of mice that went into space. But it's told from the the picture book is told from the perspective of the mouse and how he's training really hard and preparing himself and getting ready um, to go into space with astronaut Mark Kelly. So I, fun. I love that combination, particularly with that book of kind of fantasy mm-hmm. and nonfiction yeah. in the same mix, mm-hmm. which is really lovely because I think for kids, sometimes that fantasy is a little more accessible mm-hmm. because they're used to that as a reader. And then the nonfiction element that comes in just allows them to expand into that genre as oh, well. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's a fun one. Totally. Meredith, you, you have some mm. others oh, here, she's got too. Some good yeah. ones. You've got some good ones. So I've got uh, sheep. sheep Blast okay. Off by yeah. Nancy Shaw. Yeah. Who's Na- Na- any Nancy Shaw sheep book yes. began with sheep. sheep in a Jeep yes. and only continued in greatness. They just continue <laughs> yeah. to get into yeah. pickles in different formats. And so Sheep in a Jeep or Sheep Blast Off is their adventures in their rocket and going into space. And it's full of fun rhymes and... They are successful at the end, of course, so building that confidence with the kids and, yeah, the humor of the sh- the sheep and what they go through yeah. <laughs> throughout the story. And, and you're right to mention the rhymes because I think particularly with those books, she does an amazing job with the rhyme scheme mm-hmm. and a great way to kind of help kids play with language and build extend, that anticipation yeah. of yes. knowing mm-hmm. what's coming yeah, next. Yeah, the rhyme and rhythm, just particularly at the age group that these are focused at, um, that kind of pre-reader that kind of development is just so significant so I love it yeah Um, I also have another kind of older one for us called Astronaut Piggy Wiggy and Piggy Wiggy is just this bold little pig who wants to do what she wants to do and is going to going to go to space and go and learn what she needs to do to help the other astronauts in space and that's also another fun one that we've used it. in story time before. Mm-hmm. I love, and again, these connections to your summer challenge with space and all of that, but also then this sense of adventure and excitement mm-hmm. and discovery, which yeah. which is so important for kids. Yeah. Um, this next one that I have is fairly new. It was recommended on, on a webinar for 2019 books. It's called "If You Had a Jetpack" by Liesel H. Dietlfum. Was, was, that was that's, a lovely. That's a, that's a tricky one. <laughs> yes. Um, and so it's encouraging children to uh, be creative and build things. So if they could build a jetpack, what could they do with it? Who could they go to? How could they help? And eventually, the middle of the story, they remember that they would like to go help uh, the astronauts in space so they can go and work on the space station. And of course, they'll do such a good job that they'll come back and get introduced to the president yes. and maybe bring <laughs> back a few um, mm. aliens with them. You need to have a few, a few, you know, international oh, yeah. Big station <laughs> friends, right? Yes, absolutely. I love it. Thank you for taking just a few minutes to share absolutely. some of your great favorites with us today. Yeah, so much had appreciated. So much fun. Thanks. I'd like to thank Lindsay and Meredith for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with John Pickavance about his research with virtual reality within the classroom. Then we chatted with author Julie Berry about her writing process. 
If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, then feel free to follow our Instagram, at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm-hmm.